You're listening to No Borders Media. This week we feature an in-depth interview with writer, artist, and activist Gord Hill, author of the recently released The Antifa Comic Book, 100 Years of Fascism and Antifa Movements, published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Gord is a member of the Kwakawak Nation on the northwest coast of so-called British Columbia and has been actively involved with indigenous resistance, anti-colonial, and anti-capitalist movements for three decades. In this feature-length interview, we speak with Gord about the motivations for creating the Antifa comic book, the process of writing, drawing, and inking, as well as the detailed research undertaken to create his book. We discuss in-depth the process of discovering grassroots anti-fascist history, definitions of fascism, influences of fascism on wide-ranging regimes and movements globally, as well as the various internal conflicts on the political left that allowed space for fascism to thrive historically. Gord shares his views on countering the demonization of modern-day Antifa, tactical lessons from the history of confronting fascism, creating anti-fascist culture, and the necessity of self-defense against fascists. Let's take a listen to a fascinating interview with the multi-talented Gord Hill right now. I'm speaking with Gord Hill. Gord is the artist and author of the Antifa comic, comic book, 100 Years of Fascism and Antifa Movements. Gord is a member of the Kwakawak Nation. He is the person behind Warrior Publications, as well as a longtime organizer, artist, uh, writer, uh, con- contributor to anti-colonial resistance in Turtle Island. Uh, Gord is speaking to us today from a location somewhere in northern BC. Gord, welcome to No Borders Media. Oh, hey, thanks, thanks a lot, Jaggy. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you uh, to speak to you again, and it's really awesome that uh, this comic book has come out. It's it's really timely. You've put out two previous comic books, or published two previous comic books. You've been you've been drawing comics for years and years and years, but you've put them out in book form two previous times. The anti-capitalist resistance comic book and before that the 500 years of resistance comic book so just talk about the genesis of this one there's been a, a bit of a gap between your last comic book in published published form and this one how did this come together uh this came about last uh last september like about a year ago uh the arsenal pulp press asked me if i would be interested in doing an antifa comic book and they were kind of um I guess you could say inspired or uh, motivated by the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which uh, Heather Harris was killed. And then just the upsurge, the resurgence of uh, far right, neo-Nazi, fascist, uh, mobilizing and violence. So so they thought it would be a good time to put out a, an Antifa comic book. And um, I was uh, I was excited to to uh, have the opportunity to work on it. It's uh, it's an incredible comic book you cover a lot of ground and it's pretty uh, pretty detailed so i'm just i just want to maybe get into a bit about the process of, of putting together this comic book and when people say comic book they forget there's there's actual content so could you talk about the 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 written content where did that come from the sourcing of that there's a lot of detailed information in in this comic book it's a it's basically a primer on on fighting fascism and and different fascist movements all over the world so uh how'd you put together that content what were your research sources uh, what kind of books or other sources did you access to to put together this uh uh this comic book yeah it was uh it took a lot of research on my part i mean the internet i used a lot there's different books uh rise and fall of the third reich um 
Mark Bray's Anti-Flaw Handbook. Um, I mean, there's a lot of resources out there about fascism and that. And then I also used uh, a lot of the Antifa groups, like in Germany, the Antifa Infoblatt, they have a really good website with an archive, and it's translatable now because of the uh, you know internet and all that. So I was able to access a lot of archives from different groups, including uh, anti-fascist action in, uh, from the UK and anti-racist action in Toronto and all the ARA organizing that had been done in the 90s and that, like a lot of that stuff is accessible. So that was mostly how I went about gathering uh, the information to you know, make it make it into a comic format. And then you, you go forward and, and uh, draw the comics. So uh, describe that process in detail. Like, is it with pencil? <laughs> um, are, you, are you looking at other photographs uh, or, or images online? Uh, you know, you've, you've put together yeah. and, and the inking of it as well. It's, it's, it's really well done. So talk about that process as an artist uh, drawing the, drawing the oh, comics. Sure. Yeah, well, part of the uh, researching for the, um, the content, like the historical... Uh, content part of that is like I'm also coming across a lot of graphics and photographs and stuff historical historical photographs and that so I use a lot of those as the basis for my artwork um, and uh, yeah the, how I did it most I, I, I draw it all out in pencil on a, like a rough page kind of and I'll draw that out and then I'll put it onto a light table and I'll put it onto better quality paper and then I'll ink that with um, India ink using the dip pen <clears throat> so that's what I use for this comic and then once I have the artwork, black and white, uh, all finished, then I scan it in and uh, I color it and then add the text, which that's all something I had to learn as well, how to do the lettering in, on a computer and how to do the coloring and that. So that was part of the, uh, the whole learning process I had because I had to research a lot of fascism and anti-fascist resistance. And then I had to learn how to you know, do the the computer stuff with the text and the coloring and that. So it was quite a uh, it was quite a lot of work. And I started working on it a little bit in October, November, December, but I didn't really have a chance to really get to work on it until January. So within a few months, I had to produce. I think it's 113 pages of artwork or something like that. So yeah, it was uh, took a lot of time, but that was basically the process I had for creating a page and you know getting it all ready. So the the text on the comic book isn't a font. It's it's actually you writing all of that. No, it is a font. It's a font. That was okay. part of what I had to learn was how to how to manipulate text and put it into the graphic and all that. Because all my other comics before, I just hand lettered the the text. Yeah. Yeah, and the inking is all you. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible and. Um, for people who are just listening, uh, you know, you really can't do justice. People should just just pick it up along with your your other your other two books. So let's get into into the content of it. You cover a lot of ground. Obviously, Italy and Germany, both um, both in terms of the origins of fascism in Europe, but also modern day anti-fascism in the far right. You talk about the partisans uh, during the World War II period in Poland, the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, of course, Spain. You go into detail in terms of anti-fascism in the UK from the Battle of Cable Street to today, Greece, Russia, Ukraine, Sweden, France, the USA from the KKK right up until right now, the alt-right, Canada as well, of course. So talk about your choices in terms of what to cover and what not to cover. It's a huge topic, and obviously some topics have to be included, like like Italy and Germany, um, and in terms of resistance, um, there are some topics that just come to mind. But how did you make those uh, those choices about what went in and what didn't go in? Yeah, I think there were like some 
major historical uh, examples that had to be included because they're like, uh, you know, they're kind of like the uh, the archetype of what fascism was like with Italy and Germany. So I devoted a lot of uh, space to Italy and Germany because that's what, you know, Italy, that's what started the whole fascist movement. Really, it inspired fascist groups across Europe and in Germany. You know, the Nazis kind of modeled themselves after Mussolini's black shirts. So that was really important. I didn't really have a whole clear understanding of what happened in Italy. So it was really a good place for me to start on the book to educate myself about the Italian uh, experience and then going into Nazi Germany. And Nazi Germany, of course, is like the Nazis are like a major inspiration to uh, and a role model kind of thing for neo-Nazis today. So I thought that was important to kind of like kind of unravel the, the history of Nazi Germany. Um, and then there's more, you know, the modern examples. I thought there were some really important ones to be included, like uh, anti-fascist action in the UK, which I think because they're, they had so, so much success and I think they're just a really good example of an Antifa group. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of people could relate to a little bit more than maybe something in, uh, you know, some other country. I think England is a good example. And, um, uh, some of them, it's just it was also just like access to information. So AFA in the UK, it's easy to get information about them. And anti-fascist action in Germany, because of the archive, the translatable archive, I was able to get a lot more detailed information about you know modern day Germany, um, and France, you know the National Front. So like you mentioned, like these are some when you think about fascist movements, these are some of the main ones that come to mind. I mean, there was uh, quite a few that I wanted to include, but I just, I ran out of time, basically. I was a month over my deadline, just trying to produce what I did have. So, I mean, I wanted to include Australia, and I wanted to get into some of the, the neo-Nazi movements and anti-fascist movements in uh, South America and that, but I just, yeah, I wasn't able to cover it. Um, and Russia, I thought, was really important, too, because they have basically the largest fascist neo-nazi movements in the world and uh the level of uh organizing among the far right there is just, is like is, a, is at a very high level and the fa- anti-fascists there you know they face a lot of uh threats from fascist groups as well as the state so i thought that was important to include um and then some some of the countries like sweden and that and because they, they have had a fair amount of uh far right activity there but they've also had an antifa group there so some of the some of the choices were, were were made because they are they have an anti-fa group, an anti-fascist action group, and that's something that I wanted to um, to really promote with the book was the anti-fa, the anti-fascist action movement, and their uh, the methods and the ideas that anti-fa represents. So that was kind of like how some of the countries were selected. And it it's just full of facts that. I mean, a lot of things I didn't know or didn't quite appreciate. For example, you, you just referenced Russia. The fact that Russia, for example, today has the largest number of racist boneheads, uh, skinheads, racist skinheads in the world, probably outnumbering every other country combined. It's just stunning to, to, to read something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think that's something, um, I think the scope of the problem that we face today is, it's probably much larger than most people realize because, you know, we don't get a lot of information from Russia, for example, about, you know, the the level of uh, fascist activity there. So I thought, yeah, that is something important to know about. One thing uh, you already referenced, um, 
maybe not having as much knowledge about Italy and having to, to inform yourself, I felt the same way when reading, reading it, uh, reading the Italian section, because I just learned a whole bunch of things that I never knew. In, in particular, something called the Arditi del Popolo. Uh, tell our listeners about the Arditi del Popolo. Um, you, you, spend, um, you spend a bit of time in the comic book uh, uh, talking about that organization, and it's clear that you do so with a position of a lot of respect for what this, uh, what this uh, group tried to do uh, against uh, Mussolini and the fascists. Yeah, the Arditi del Popolo were uh, kind of like a shock troop, a commando force of the anti-fascist resistance, an armed anti-fascist resistance that arose in response to the uh, the activities of the black shirts, the violence of the black shirts. And they were comprised, uh, during World War One. Italy had like this kind of special force that were called the Arditi, the daring ones, I think is the literal translation. Uh, so they were kind of like a shock troop that were used to raid enemy trenches and uh, carry out those kinds of assaults. And then after the war, after World War I, uh, you know, some of the Arditi uh, went to the fascists, but some of them uh, joined the anti-fascists, and they were the ones who organized the first Arditi kind of detachments. And the, it just kind of spread throughout Italy. So people started joining their Arditi, you know, with, uh, anarchists, communists, socialists, um, and so they're a pretty potent force. I think I forget the name of the town, but there's like there's one major battle where they repelled like hundreds of black shirts trying to take over this town, which was one of their tactics. And the RDT, a small number of RDT, were able to defeat them and force them out of the uh, the city or whatever. Um, and uh, over time, the uh, well, the Socialist Party, because they're uh, you know they were reformists and they wanted to uh, maintain uh, their legality, and you know they wanted to. Uh, enter government they wanted to become a part of the government so the socialist party kind of sabotaged the whole rdt movement because they banned uh, their members from joining the rdt and just kind of uh, undermined the ability of the uh, armed anti-fascist uh, movement to resist the the black shirts so they kind of compromised with the, with mussolini and in fact at some at one point they made a, a treaty a peace treaty with mussolini and the black shirts um but anyway yeah that's what the rdt was it was basically an armed resistance uh, comprised of various leftist and anarchist uh, groups. For me, it was just incredible to just discover some of these movements of resistance, whether they were small or larger. The Arditi were actually pretty large at one point. For example, in, in Germany, in terms of the things that you know, I was discovering and just kind of <clears throat> impressed by and blown away by, I knew about the White Rose resistance uh, in Germany against Nazism, but that's been that's sort of been uh, trumpeted and heralded because it was nonviolent. But you had something called the Edelweiss Pirates um, in the UK in the 70s after the murder of a, of a Sikh youth. There was the Southall Youth Movement, and that really resonated with me. I really want to reach out and try to find people who were part of that movement back in the day because that could inspire some some people of color organizing now. In Germany, against fascists there in the in the 80s and 90s, you had a, a Turkish youth group called uh, Antifa Genslik um, against the KKK. You had something called the Deacons for Defense, and I can name more, but um, talk about uh, the things that you discovered, because it's clearly this is a process of discovery when we're when we're unearthing um, what Antifa resistance looks like, we discover some of these, these smaller groups or um, uh, just courageous efforts at, at resisting uh, fascism in whatever, whatever form it takes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty much every, every chapter was a big learning thing for me, too, like with Italy, with the RDT, uh, Germany. I mean, I didn't really know much about the, the 
the resistance in Germany, because like, except, you know, things like the White Rose and the Edelweiss Pirates, like you mentioned, um, which are, which are really celebrated as this, these examples of anti-fascist resistance in Nazi Germany, but they were like quite minimal actually compared to, you know, the red front of the communist party and uh, just the, the level of uh, anti-fascist resistance that there was in Germany in the 1920s and into the early thirties and how that was just, that was kind of uh, just overwhelmed once the Nazis were put in power, placed in power by the, the government um, and, uh, yeah, certainly like over the year, like the, this stuff in France too, in the early eighties, when, uh, these youth of color, people of color kind of, kind of gangs or groups started organizing themselves to defend themselves against, uh, fascist skinheads and that. And so there was a lot, every, every, every chapter I learned a lot about, like the, like you mentioned, the South Hall youth, youth movement, like the level of resistance from Asian peoples in England against attacks, um, all all that stuff was very uh, you know very illuminating for me because I didn't re- realize like how much you know how how far the how expansive the resistance was all, all through the years in all these different countries and that um, and I think that's what that's it's really inspiring and some of those you know a lot of those stories they are like you know total victories kind of you know like in France they were able to force uh, fascist boneheads out of areas of the of Paris and other towns and cities where you know they were were dominating at one point um in the in the UK the anti-fascist action how they were you know they were able to stop a lot of the fascist organizing in the 80s and uh you know even anti-fascist action groups in Germany you know what they were able to do during the 80s and 90s you know despite seeing this like massive upsurge of far right organizing after the collapse of the Berlin Wall uh, and all that type of stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was all it was all quite a quite a learning experience for me. And uh, I mean, I hope readers, you know, share, you know, like what you found too. That you know, there was there's a lot of things we didn't really know. You know, I always I always kind of thought I I know what fascism is and this kind of stuff. And, and you know, you hear about Mussolini or whatever, but once but then when you start researching it, and because uh, part of the the purpose of the book is to, you know, so we can learn from the history and you know, what did groups do at the time and what was successful, what wasn't successful. Um, so that, yeah, I, I think it, I think it just really helps. And I, one thing about the comic format, I, I think it'll, it'll be more accessible to a lot of people who don't really have the time or energy to sit down to read a lot of these historical textbooks, like about Italy or Nazi Germany. Um, and then those, the stuff that's more modern, like about Sweden and there, and maybe even Russia, like it's just hard to find this information. You have to kind of go to these groups uh, and go through their archives and to get a lot of the the information, the, his, the history, the recent history, even. So a lot of, it would be hard for I think a lot of people to to gather a lot of information about Sweden just to kind of have an overview of what what's happened in Sweden. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole thing was a big learning experience for sure. One of the things that you discovered that sort of blew you blew your mind away, and when I asked that, I just want to say that every single person historically and contemporarily that in some way or another confronted fascism is is somebody we respect and have courage behind. But you know, obviously, it's very personal the kinds of things that that we're impressed by. For example, I just uh, I didn't know about the South Hall Youth Movement, and you know, every time I discover something like that, I'm like, why the fuck didn't I know this beforehand? <laughs> And thank you, Gord, for for putting it in the in the comic book because I discovered it now. I'm going to try to find more about it. But 
in terms of your own personal um, journey and, and putting this together, what, what did you discover where you were like, fuck, I, I wish I knew about this before. This is incredible. Um, talk about your own personal uh, highlights in, in terms of anti-fascist resistance that, that you put in the comic book. Well, it's, uh, like I mentioned, I think there are DT Del Popolo. That was like, that was pretty cool to learn about uh, the Red Front in Germ- German Nazi Germany. I mean, that was pretty inspiring, even though it didn't turn out all that well in the end. There, um, and some of the other, uh, just some of the actions, like the anti-fascist action in uh, Germany, where they showed up dressed as uh, some kind of special police unit and they raided the the apartment of a fascist and took all his files and stuff like that. Like that kind of stuff is just kind of, you know, that's not really, uh, you know, it's just not part of the history that we know, but learning little things like that, it's kind of, oh, that, that was a cool action. Or, uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, some of the, uh, res- you know, the, what the, what the anti-fascist in Russia faced with, you know, the level of deadly violence there, like that was, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, I'd heard a little bit, you know, Every once in a while you hear what someone was murdered by a fascist there or something, but just the level of it, like learning about that, it was kind of like, wow, you know, you just, you just have so much more respect for anti-fascists in situations like that as well. Or, uh, you know, Greece, like the Golden Dawn. I mean, I heard a little bit about Golden Dawn, but then when I had to research it and learn about, you know, how they grew and, you know, and the, and the Greek anti-fascist uh, resistance, like that, all that stuff is pretty inspiring. So I hope that's what, you know the chapters are mostly uh, mostly inspiring. I hope to uh, that motivates people to participate in anti-fascist resistance organizing of some kind. Um, but yeah, I mean those are. Uh, I mean some of them. I some of the things I I had knowledge of because I have been involved on and off in anti-fascist, anti-racist organizing since the 1990s. So there's some things like I knew about the Battle of Cable Street in uh, in London and you know, the rise of the National Front, I had some ideas, and of course, Anti-Racist Action Toronto, I mean, I worked with them a little bit in the early 90s, and so some of those things I already had knowledge of, but um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I think those are the main ones that, that I mentioned in terms of like what I learned that had a big impact on me, but the other thing about it too is like, when you're researching fascist movements, there's a lot of uh, brutality. I mean, there are, you know, Nazi Germany carrying out a genocide, a large-scale industrial-type genocide. Like, that type of stuff, you know, kind of I knew about it, but kind of researching it again and having to get into it, it's like, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like a, it makes you kind of angry, you know, you know, what these, you know, what these fascists, you know, what they, what they promote, what, what, what they want, and, uh, that kind of stuff kind of like angers you and that, you know, maybe motivated me to do more work in the comic to, cause I kind of realized again, the importance of knowing this history and what these, uh, you know, what fascist groups are actually all about. So, yeah, that was another aspect of it for me. Making the comic was kind of delving into this really dark side of humanity, I guess you could say. What you just said reminds me of, um, something, um, we had a demonstration this past summer here in Montreal, an anti-fascist demonstration, because uh, local anti-fascists were able to expose uh, a key member of the Daily Stormer, uh, somebody by the name of Zeiger. At the same time, we also knew where a, a, a senior member of the Soldiers of Odin, a, an anti-immigrant uh, Islamophobic group, lived. They actually lived on the same street. So we marched, uh, we marched to both their houses. 
And, you know, like people come out on their balconies and are wondering what's going on. And I was sort of one of the MCs. So I'm trying to describe what's going on and why we're there. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm trying to repeat uh, some of the things that these people believe, uh, you know, like vile, misogynistic, racist, genocidal stuff. You know, I'm, 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 I, and, I, and I read this stuff and I know it and I'm trying to repeat it, but I can't bring myself to repeat it because it's so fucking vile. Like, and I'm a pretty seasoned yeah. person and what have you, but I just can't. Like, uh, one of the Daily Stormer people, for example, in Charlottesville yelled, um, yeah. even now, like, I don't feel like even saying it, but death to the, then he uses, he uses a derogatory term for Jewish people, race war now, all this crap, uh, rape fantasies, yeah. all this crap. So my question to you, that's just a preface to a question, which is, I mean, as you said, you're delving into a horror story here, um, and, and, you're, and you're trying to represent um, victims, both victims and survivors of the Holocaust, of, of, of massacres, and you're also visually representing people like Hitler, like, like uh, Mussolini, um, uh, the SS, uh, uh, racist boneheads, uh, Spencer, and all those fuckers. So... Just go through the emotions of that, you know, when you're drawing this, and what, what, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you manage those emotions when you're, when you're trying to draw this and present it? Yeah, the drawing is uh, pretty straightforward because it's maybe it's more technical or something. Like I'm drawing, a, you know, I'm drawing a group of people and whatever some kind of activity is going on. It might be like uh, brown shirts attacking somebody or being attacked or something like that. Um, so it's not the drawing isn't so much a the thing I find it's just more uh, now I'm drawing this scene that I've already figured out. But the emotional thing is more when you're doing the research and you're writing the story, the script for the comic. That's kind of more where you get into the stuff like you research concentration camps and all this type of stuff. Uh, watching documentaries about you know the SS and stuff like that. Uh, that's more it's more in the research phase I would say, and in the writing phase is where you kind of get more. You just kind of really think about this stuff. But then when it comes to the drawing, it's just kind of, you know, I figured out what the scene's going to be for that panel. And now it's just a matter of, like, how do I draw it? How do, what's the perspective and all that type of stuff? You've already, you've already alluded to this. But, um, you know, the, the history that we learn through the mainstream or whatever is just a very superficial history of what fascism and anti-fascism is. So, you know, fascism is Hitler and Mussolini and anti-fascism is some combination of Churchill and de Gaulle and Roosevelt and Stalin. And um, you don't talk about Churchill, Roosevelt, uh, Stalin. And I mean, you, you, you mentioned some of those people in passing, of course, but the resistance is people, grassroots people with great courage fighting back early because all that, that, all that war stuff in World War II, that was later when, um, in many ways, it was a bit too late to prevent the full-on industrial genocide that you just described and, and other horror stories. So could you just talk about that process of, of, of discovering grassroots history and taking that history back from, um, you know, like perceiving it as just simply something that is done by these, these great men of, of history rather than uh, often and almost overwhelmingly anonymous people everyday people who fight back against the odds yeah well, i think that that's part that that aspect of history is is certainly uh yeah it's really uh i mean i would never consider churchill or any of those people stalin i, I wouldn't consider them to, to really be anti-fascist because they were basically supporting the fascists before world war ii because they you know 
a lot of the ruling elites around the world, you know, they praised Mussolini because he, you know, he, he took Italy, sick Italy, and he made it strong. And the same with Nazi Germany, you know, Hitler raised up Germany that was all, you know, living in poverty and unemployment and that. So a lot of the rulers around the world, they actually, they, you know, they celebrated, they liked Hitler. He didn't really get too much bad press until World War II started. So, yeah, when it comes to, I mean, the imperial powers and that, like, I wouldn't include them in any anti-fascist resistance book, except for the fact that they eventually engaged in a, a war with the fascist countries. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately they they would sympathize more with the fascists uh, and uh, because it and carry out an anti-communist kind of repression, which is what happened after World War II, and they repressed a lot of the Antifa groups and that. So, yeah, I certainly wouldn't see any of those, you know, the rulers and the presidents and all that as being, uh, you know, any kind of anti-fascist heroes. Um, so that's why I didn't include them in the book at all, really, other than to say that they thought Hitler was doing a great job until World War II. Um, and in the... In the when it comes to the anti-fascist resistance, it, it really is the grassroots autonomous uh, groups and movements that, that that's what makes anti-fascism. It's the communities that have to mobilize themselves to defend their community or, you know, to defend uh, other people or areas of a city or whatever from a fascist invasion or fascist violence and stuff like that. So I think that was, um, I mean, and then that's like what Antifa is it's kind of like community organizing community self-organizing community self-defense so that's that was the the focus of the book from the beginning yeah for sure you you already talked a bit about what you would have liked to maybe have added to the book um it was just it's a matter of time and it's like with any project at some point you just need to need to finish and get on with it and you know maybe there could be a part two to the antifa comic book you mentioned maybe australia uh the dictatorships of latin america um, I'd add, um, I'd add as well, um, India and the rise of of the Hindu far right people who are admirers of Hitler, and what that does is actually open up the fact that fascism does play out in other contexts, and you and you do um, other contexts beyond European or or a Eurocentric contexts. Uh, you actually have a couple of panels in the anti in the uh, comic book about um, the Mufti of of Jerusalem in the Middle East uh, who who collaborated with Hitler and had some influence on, on Middle Eastern regimes. You also mentioned in a very modern uh, panel in, in the same part of the book how people have gathered and supported uh, the Kurdish resistance, the YPG, the, the anti-authoritarian anti Kurdish resistance, to fighting Islamic fascism as represented through, through ISIS. Um, those are tougher things to, to include and to say, so I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about that when uh, you know, including examples of, of fighting fascism that um not just fighting fascism but examples of fascism itself that are that are that aren't eurocentric uh, i'm glad you did include them just to get, tell you where i'm coming from but often people will will not talk about that harder stuff to talk about in terms of fascism playing out in india or in the middle east uh or that isis should be seen as a fascist uh force that should be fought and i think about the fascist a fascist state um I mean, it's not terribly different than a lot of states that we don't even think of as being fascist. But I mean, like, you know, some of the military regimes in uh, in South America 
technically might not be considered fascist, but they're super authoritarian, military rule, dictatorship, uh, all the stuff we associate with fascism. But I think there's some things that are the definitions of fascism, like it's a movement. Um, there are some things that that uh, define what a fascist movement is, and it's very and it is very loose. And it, it's you know, anytime you start looking up about fascism, the first thing that someone's going to say is like it's really hard to define fascism because of all these factors. And I think one of them is the ultra nationalism of the fascist movement. So it's based in a nation state, and that nation state has a history and a culture and a social order and a social system. And the fascist movement that, that takes root in that particular nation state develops all of its own kind of, a lot of its own culture and uh, philosophy and stuff. So there is a lot of variance between different fascist movements because you have some fascist movements that, you know, they're, they're not interested in Christianity. They see that as a slave religion. And then you have other fascist movements that are, you know, basically hand in hand with the clergy and stuff like that. that is uh, like fascist clerical movements almost. So you have a lot of variation. And I think um, in South America, there is a lot of uh, fascist uh, history there, partly because of the immigration of European fascists going to countries like Argentina and Brazil. But you also have this other thing with the military dictatorships. And then you actually do have uh, neo-Nazi you know, skinhead groups and neo-Nazi groups down in South America. And you also have, you know, uh, like rash and, uh, uh, sharp skins that are fighting against these uh, fascist groups and stuff. Um, and then in Japan, I, you know, I think before World War II, there were hundreds of what would be described as fascist groups. And they were, but, you know, but they're like, they're kind of tied into the imperial system, the emperor and that. And so there was, a, they have kind of a distinct type of fascist movements in Japan. And then in India, like you're talking about, I think with the BJP, and how you know one of the main philosophers for the BJP a political party was uh, was a, an admirer of Hitler, and I mean the, all that 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 would be uh, I mean that would be a, an interesting thing to get into in terms of an anti-fascist book, um, but yeah, I was really limited by time and uh, the deadlines and that and my ability to to do that would have, you know, I, I just wouldn't have been able to include that type of stuff and do it in a, in a good, in a good manner. Um, but I, but the thing, just to go back to the thing about the fascist state though, is it, it's kind of hard to distinguish between a fascist state and an imperialist state because they're, you know, they share a lot of the same things, but I think with the book, what it focuses mostly on is like fascist movements that arise from within the population and they mobilize themselves and one way or another, they they get they gain power, um, and I think with going back to the origins, like with Italy and Germany, one thing you really see is that it's really based in a military um, kind of context. Like there, the Italian black shirts and the German uh, brown shirts were primarily demobilized soldiers, veterans of World War One, and so there's this really strong military paramilitary. Uh, background or, or foundation of those type, those archetypal fascist movements. And I, there was a, one philosopher, I forget what his name is, I should dig it up because I've been using this quote, because he described fascism as the militarization of politics. 
And that, to me, that comes from the history, this historical origins of fascism, which was from demobilized soldiers, uh, veterans of war, um, who that was, and who entered into a political mobilizing, a political campaign, and were basically the shock troops for this, you know, far right fascist reactionary movement. And I think that's something that you know we kind of need to define fascism and have somewhat basic understanding of it because otherwise we you could open it up and it's like well every state is kind of fascist it definitely has can have fascist tendencies to it but an actual fascist movement is something that you know like i described it, it arises from within the population it has organizers and it has activists and stuff like that and that's kind of like what we're seeing and what we're having to deal with um you know, in the United States, a lot of people on the left would would describe the U.S. as kind of like being a fascist or a fascistic type of state regime. But I think what you know what we're dealing with on the ground is these kind of you know kind of grassroots uh, fascist movements uh, are taking and taking to the streets. They feel emboldened by the Trump presidency, and so the first time in a long time, you're actually seeing uh, fairly extensive. Uh, street mobilizing by fascist far-right groups in the U.S., which you didn't see for years, you know, like they just didn't have the capacity to mobilize in March. And if they did, it was a gong show of, you know, hundreds of police are protecting like 40 KKK members or neo-Nazis, and there's thousands of counter-protesters. Well, now you're seeing, you know, hundreds of far-right and fascist uh, militants in the streets fighting uh, with Antifa like what we've seen in uh, in uh, Portland and that in uh, Oakland. So I think there's some, you know, there is something to be said about having some basic definition of fascism that kind of that informs us in our analysis of what is a fascist movement. Talk uh, talk a bit if you can about referencing the uh, Mufti of Jerusalem in the World War II period who collaborated with Hitler as well as resistance to ISIS uh, in your in your comic book. Well, what I found was, uh, yeah, the Grand Mufti of uh, Palestine, he was, I mean, they were, the Palestinians were kind of engaging in, uh, I mean, there was already kind of ongoing uh, conflict going on with uh, Jewish immigration into Palestine. And the Mufti uh, was a extreme anti-Semitic. And so he began a collaboration with the Nazis, Nazi Germany, um, against the British because the British were the ones controlling Palestine. And so he, he would, he went to Nazi Germany, he stayed in Berlin. They helped him set up a radio show. So he's broadcasting his anti-Semitic, uh, you know, revolt message into Palestine for, you know, for a while there. And then he helped organize, uh, one of the SS, uh, one of the SS groups, um, comprised of uh, Muslims. And so his plan was that, they would, you know, once once the Nazis conquered Europe, they would go back into Palestine and they would uh, basically exterminate all the Jews in Palestine, and that would, you know, and liberate Palestine from the British and from this Jewish uh, immigration and stuff like that. Um, but then after the war, uh, Nazi Germany is defeated, so a lot of top-ranking uh, Nazi officials actually escaped into the Middle East. And it was with the Mufti and his his networks. That's who supported them, helped helped them get reestablished and survive. And then a lot of those Nazis 
began working for different regimes like in Egypt and later on in Iraq and that and um, Lib- uh, Libya in setting up their authoritarian police states. So all through the Middle East, you have this big impact of of Nazis going in there and helping to organize their policing institutions, their military apparatus, their uh, their whole repressive con- system for social control had Nazis like organizing it for them. And uh, yeah, it's I mean that was pretty that was a pretty uh, illuminating thing because it's ironic because today of course you know neo Nazis in the far right you have this whole Islamophobic Islamophobic campaign that they're doing you know, uh, you know ra- radical Islam's trying to take over and that but during World War Two the you know the Nazis straight up collaborated and worked with uh, different Muslim groups and uh, Hitler saw you know he saw the Muslim Islam as more of a warrior religion than Christianity so he saw some uh, you know some uses for it in during World War Two um, now what was the other question was about um, about Isis and uh the YPG and the International Brigade supporting the uh, YPG? Yeah, so I did include a brief uh, little section about uh, kind of anti-fa, anti-fascist activists and militants going into uh, Rahava and all that in the Kurdish territory to fight alongside the Kurds against uh, ISIS. Um, and I think uh, they, they've, they've developed an analysis that that ISIS is like a fascist kind of movement. Um, and I, I think you, you, you could say that, I mean, there is what they call Islamofascism, um, which is basically, it's a critique of, I think, Islamic fundamentalism, which has, you know, it's authoritarian theocratic regimes and that, but that kind of differs from a fascist regime, which is centered around an all powerful, all knowing individual around, you know, whom, whom a, a cult of personality is based, but a fascist regime isn't um, for the most, you know, most historical examples of the fascist regimes, they're not uh, theocracies. They're not ruling by religion because the fascist politics is the religion. So Hitler becomes like a messianic figure. He's, he's enveloped in mysticism and, you know, people see him as he's like uh, some kind of saint or, uh, you know, uh, holy person who's come down to you know lead the Aryan race out or whatever so I think that's in that that's a big difference between what we're seeing with something like ISIS and you know fascist movements in general Gord I got a copy of your book early so that I could do this interview with you and uh, I was uh, on the metro accompanying a six-year-old taking this uh, this guy to uh, to a Saturday activity and he noticed I was reading the comic book, so he, he loves comics, so he took it. He, he wasn't able to read it, but he just, he just loves looking at the images. And during that day, we were hanging out, so um, you know he was really getting into it. And then eventually, he's like, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? So I'm explaining, you know, and he's got a sense of who the good guys and bad guys are. And as I'm explaining more, he can actually start predicting, you know, like these Nazi-looking symbols or all these cross-looking symbols are generally the symbols of the bad guys. Anytime he sees Hitler, it's like clear that he's a bad guy. Um, yeah. uh, the good guys are these are these youth or people fighting back. It was really fun just to see him, like, you know, the, the, 
the, I guess the caricature of a comic book is just some good guy that beats the bad guy. But obviously, yeah. there's there's some. Uh, so that that was just a lot of fun um, doing that with this with this kid. But there were a couple of times when I when I uh, I had to say sometimes this is a good guy, sometimes it's a bad guy. Um, now, like you know, for example, <laughs> you had the Polish partisans who who fought the Nazis quite courageously. But some of those partisans were also involved in anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, the SPD was repressed by the Nazis, but when the SPD had a level of power, they also repressed uh, uh, people to their left. So there's there's some of those gray yeah. areas. Can you talk about can you talk about some of those uh, those gray areas where, you know, it's not so clear who the good guys and bad guys are, or sometimes the good guys become bad guys. Yeah, I think well, I think like in the case of Nazi Germany, and I, I mean that's why, that's why one of the more important lessons or things that we should learn from is what happened in Nazi Germany with the Social Democratic Party and how they. Uh, the conflict between the socialists and the communists, how that really undermined uh, a lot of the anti-fascist resistance and kind of enabled uh, the Nazis to actually uh, gain power there. Um, so I think that's like, it's just a really important thing to know about. Um, and there's some other, th- like uh, with anti-fascist action in the UK, I had wanted to include uh, some of the internal problems they had because it's, you know, they've been quite public about it. There's a lot of statements out there about some of the problems they had working with Searchlight, which is more kind of a reformist, liberal, uh, work with the police type of uh, group, and they how they kind of work to undermine uh, the activities of anti-fascist action there in the UK, uh, things like that. Like I think it's important to to include that stuff to be to have knowledge about those types of uh, situations, because we're going to encounter those types of situations again. Um, you know, working with uh, reformists or social democrats and stuff like that, and I mean, the, in the the extremes that happened in Germany, you know, with the uh, when the social sort of democratic parties in power and how they, you know, they they basically they sent in the uh, the stormtroopers to uh, you know to kill the communists during the Spartacus revolt and things like that, like how serious these divisions can get if they're not uh, somehow resolved, uh, because then you have your you're basically you have your left divided and fighting one another while the fascist far right you know grows and you know consolidates itself so those are things like what's important to learn from and just how uh with with afa in the uk uh how how tricky it can be working with other groups like liberals and reformists and whatnot i mean unfortunately i wasn't able to, to include that history but i mean that is a part of fascist and anti-fascist resistance history is these internal divisions and internal conflicts that occur within the, the kind of the broader anti-fascist oppositional type movements. You see, you see similar debates going on in the United States today about Antifa, you know, because there's a big, there's a concerted effort to demonize Antifa by the right wing, the far right and the more conservative right uh, to demonize Antifa. And then you have on, on the left, you have, uh, you know, the liberal reformist groups also kind of taking part in condemning Antifa or Noam Chomsky saying that Antifa is the greatest gift to the, the far right, you know, this, these types of statements. And I mean, uh, with my book, I, I kind of wanted to counter that narrative, but also like to promote Antifa and to show that it, it, the, the, the victories and the success that the Antifa has had at fighting fascist groups, um, even though d- despite these internal divisions. And that. Gord, your, your comic book is basically an incredible an incredible uh, act of popular education, and 
it's clear that in, in doing anti-fascist work historically and contemporarily, a huge part of what people are doing is popular education. But when, when reading through your book, what we see is that in order to properly confront the fascists, you're not highlighting people who are simply uh, getting into debates with them. You're not highlighting uh, people who want to use humor or think that by ignoring them, they'll go away. Your comic book, in the end, is is pretty violent. Not just the violence of fascists who who are on um, who are on a campaign of genocide in the in the worst case scenarios, but violence to deal with them. Whether that takes the form of self defense, whether that takes the form of punching a Nazi, whether that takes the form of taking arms and and confronting those folks. So talk about that. Talk about the big tactical lessons about confronting fascism historically and today i think just looking at the history i mean anybody who studies the history you realize that you have to have uh some kind of self-defense force you have to have a mentality that you're going to defend yourself you know using any means necessary because the fascist movements uh you know like i said that the militarization of politics so if politics is militarized then you need to have the ability to defend yourself because uh I mean, in Italy and uh, Nazi Germany, you had tens of thousands of demobilized soldiers who ended up joining all these militia groups. And, you know, a lot of these militia groups ended up being amalgamated into the brown shirts, which was the paramilitary formation of the Nazi party. So you have this high level of violence that the fascists are preparing for their training. They're equipping themselves. They're arming themselves for violence. I mean, you look how quickly... When you started having these clashes in the streets, like in Oakland and Portland and uh, out on the East Coast and that, how quickly these little fascist groups kind of expanded, but then started incorporating uh, street fighting uh, tactics and techniques. Like you look at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville last year and how equipped the far right were. I mean, you had the armed militias there to provide security and a lethal overwatch for them. Then you had their own, the, the fascist the formations that they had, uh, you know, a lot of shields, a lot of defensive gear. You've seen that again in Portland just uh, in uh, earlier in August, uh, you know, the Proud Boys and uh, Patriot Prayer, you know, fairly well equipped with like helmets and all kinds of protective gear, because this is what, you know, this is the type of thing that they're, you know, mostly, mostly motivates the base of the movement, which is, uh, these kind of paramilitary uh, formations. So when you when you have an, a threat like that, you have to consider how are we going to defend ourselves against this. And I I mean I I didn't um, I didn't emphasize things like uh, speaking conferences or uh, you know debates or whatever or making uh, making banners and stuff like that. But I did include things because I think that's all very important. Um, the anti creating anti-fascist culture. I mean, I, I tried to include things about that because that's like really important. Um, you know, with the rock against racism concerts that happened in the UK, like massive mobilizations of people like popular education, like you said. So those things I include, these are very important things. Um, and maybe there's a, an overemphasis on the physical realm of it. But part of the thing is with a comic book, it's, I kind of wanted to have more action in it 
so that's why there's a lot of the, the fighting, you know, between the Red Front and the Nazis, you know, brown shirts or in, you know, with the boneheads and stuff like that. So I wanted to include more action, but that's also like a reality of it. And and that's one of the things that sets fascist movements apart from a lot of other kind of political movements is this level of violence that is brought with it. Because, you know, like I was saying, the, the, you have these like this young, this soldier mentality among a lot of the far right militants. And then you also have this like racist genocidal politics that's behind it as well. Uh, this kind of racial hatred and anti-Semitism that's, you know, taken to the maximum. So all of this is a very dangerous brew and groups that are targeted by these types of paramilitary groups have to be able to defend themselves. So I, I kind of wanted to promote this idea that you, there is this physical aspect to anti-fascism that can't be neglected neglected, and that it must be prepared for. And I think examples like uh, AFA in the UK, you know, they had a really good, uh, basically, uh, strategy, like you have to have physical and ideological confrontation. So you can't just put out leaflets and hold conferences against racism and fascism and that. You, you also have to be there to disrupt their uh their public organizing events, which includes their rallies and their meetings and their conferences to disrupt those, you know, they have the whole no platform idea. That's like, that's the basis of it is like, don't let them publicly organize and agitate and stuff like that. So I think that's a really good, uh, good model. I think it was fairly successful. Um, so yeah, that's why I kind of did the comic the way I did, um, and, you know, celebrated the, acts of resistance including armed resistance against fascist groups because the ultimately uh that's where anti-fascist resistance has to have some capability of defending itself against fascist violence gord by way of wrapping up uh, one last question we've been we've you've been referring to this throughout the interview which is different lessons and things and um you've just addressed in detail uh the strategic and tactical necessity of uh, defending against fascism and the the necessity of being prepared to do so, which in, which means not having any illusions about violence, but do share with with our listeners other big lessons that you draw uh, or that you want people to take from not just uh, reading the uh, the Antifa comic book, but also all the other reading that you know that went into the research. What are the the couple of of, of clear lessons that people need to take away from this that you think are urgent and that people need to hear? Uh, I think that uh, the fascist movements, well, basically kind of like what I said, like uh, fascist movements are, are, are based on uh, violence. Uh, they're comprised of aggressive, uh, aggressive men um, that anti-fascists have to take into account and prepare for. And that anti-fascist resistance needs to have a broad uh, community-based kind of support uh, in order to be ultimately to be successful. Um, so I think it, it basically what AFA's thing was like, you have to have a physical and ideological confrontation against fascism. So that's the most, probably the most important lesson from the book, um, I would say, of you know, that's, you have to, when you're faced with a fascist far right movements like this, like you have to, 
yeah, it's uh, that would basically be it. Gord Hill, author and artist of the Antifa comic book, 100 Years of Fascism and Antifa Movements, uh, published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Thank you for speaking with us on No Borders Media. All right. Well, thanks a lot for having me. You were just listening to a No Borders Media feature interview with writer, artist, and activist Gord Hill author of the recently released The Antifa Comic Book, 100 Years of Fascism and Antifa Movements, published by Arsenal Pulp Press. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance, with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of colour, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Subcurrent focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. Remember, remember, remember